Good morning. The scripture passage this morning will be in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. If you would like to follow along, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you, and you can find this passage on page 1780. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, for Christ will shine on you. Thanks, Becca. Hi, everyone. If you're newer, we're going through this letter in the New Testament of the Bible called Ephesians. This is just the next few verses that we're looking at today. And I'm going to jump right in with where we're going with this. The chapter 5 starts with, um, Be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ laid his life down as a fragrant offering. That's how the chapter starts, and everything is framed by that. And so what this passage is essentially saying is that um, the, one of the ways in which we're supposed to see ourselves as imitators of God, if we're believers in Christ, is by being light by walking as light. So the, that phrase, to walk, is used three times in, the, in this chapter. It's used in the first verse, to walk the way Jesus walked. And then it's used again here to say that, um, it says, um, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And then the next word in the translation you probably have is live as children of light, um, which is a fine translation, I guess. Um, but the word is actually not live, it's walk. And it's supposed to point you back to imitating God and walking in the way of love. And then now it says, again, walk as children of light. That's what we're doing. We're imitating God by imitating Christ so that we could be a fragrant offering. And the way we're doing that in this context of these verses is walking as light. Um, one of the things you see all throughout human experience and interaction is trying to get people from believing that they're in something or that they use something to that they are something. Uh, you, can, you can see this just in like um, selling brands to people, right? It, it's fine for a company to try to get somebody to, to use something a few times, but what they really want is for you to think of yourself as somebody who is a something user, right? So you, you're not just somebody who drinks Folgers coffee. You're a Folgers coffee drinker. I see those looks of disdain. I used Folgers because I knew that you were snobbish suburbanites, okay? <laughs> right? Because you're not. You're something else drinkers, right? Um, or cars, like they want, right? Like Chevy wants rural Wisconsin men to see themselves not as a guy who drives a Chevy, but as a Chevy driver or a Ford driver, 
You know what I mean? They, want, they don't just want you to be like, well, I use this thing. They want that it to be, they want to get it inside your identity. And the reason why they want to get it inside your identity is because then it becomes part of who you think you are. Choosing it becomes loyalty to yourself, and you will reliably choose it, and you won't even think of it as a decision. Oh, it's time to buy a new truck. Well, we'll just get a Ford. You know what I mean? Because it's, you think of it as yourself, right? You see this in um, reform movements. You see this in political parties, right? They don't want you to be somebody who voted Republican a couple of times or voted Democrat or we'll see who's up next time. They want you to identify with, I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. Does that make sense? Um, Parents try to help people see this in families, right? Like, they're like, you know, kids will be like, well, I don't don't like this family. You're like, you are this family. Like, when you go out and embarrass our family or when you go out and do great stuff and people see you, like, our brand is tied to you. Like, you—it's not voluntary. Like, oh, you can be part of this family if you want to. Like, we are this family. You are this family. You're not in this family, right? Um, you can see this in businesses. Like, I, one of the things I look for when I look for people I want on the High Point staff is I'm looking for people who aren't looking to be an employee, but who, like, this is their church, and everything that happens here, this is their place. So they don't, want, they don't walk by paper on the floor. They pick it up because this is their place. You know what I mean? And you can see a really big difference in Christians when they realize that about the church, for example. When they realize that they're not—they don't go to a—you don't go to a church, primarily speaking. Of course you go to a church. But like, first and foremost, you are the church. We're the church. The human beings that are part of the sheepfold of Jesus are the church, okay? We're the church. When people get that, and they realize that like, church isn't that thing they go to, but that they are literally the church themselves with the other believers— it fundamentally changes their relationship to the local church if they understand it correctly. Now, there's some people who use that as a cop-out. Well, you know, we're the church, so wherever we are is church, and I can be in my bed, and it's church. No, that's not true. Right? That's a self-serving temptation to interpret things that way. It's one of the reasons why the Bible literally says, when multiple people are gathered together, that I'm there. So it's not just you, right? Um— but, like, when people get that, all of a sudden they get really, like, focused on, like, they want their church to be great. They want the people in it to feel loved. They want new people to feel welcome. People like that, they talk to new people when they come, and they make new friends, and they invite them to things, because they, they see this is their church, that they, and they are that church. Do you know what I mean? And so, when, um, when we come to this passage, one of the things that you'll see is, is that the focus is not— on just like, hey, um, you use Jesus, or Jesus will help you, or like Jesus is this thing that you can give and take a little from, and won't that be fun? The emphasis is that you are to imitate God, and if you belong to Jesus, you are light. And you need to know that's who you are and what you are, and then you need to let that come out of you like an act of loyalty in everything that you do. You understand? Um, all right, let's, uh, I want to look at four implications of this in rapid succession, relatively speaking. Um, the first is, is the, one of the first things to observe about this passage is that it just, it says you are light if you're a believer. So if you, um, have experienced the miracle of regeneration, God has given you the capacity to have faith, and you have believed in Jesus, right? It's, the Bible says that he's raised you from death to life, and you are light, Okay. It doesn't say that you were in darkness and now you are in light. That's actually not what it says. 
It could have easily said that. It's not what it says. It says, before you were darkness, right? So I, I know that, like, it's, it's actually, it's sort of correct to say to people that you should love the sinner and not the, love the sinner and hate the sin, right? And there is a certain amount of daylight you can get between people and what they do. And, like, it's true that you, like, you don't want to totally reject a person, but you can tell them what they're doing is wrong, right? Like, there's some truth to that. But on another level, like, it's false to pretend that all that you do and who and what you are are completely separate. They're not separate. Before Christ, we weren't just in darkness. We were participating in what we were in, and we were darkness. And when Jesus comes into our lives and changes us, then it's different. Like, we're not just now in light, that the light shines on us. We're like, oh, isn't that nice? We, we, we are light, right? That's, that's different, right? You're not just a recipient of the shining. You are a shiner, right? That matters. That's kind of a big deal. Sorry, I'll go back for a second. What are, okay, why is that important? Okay, I—we I, live in 2019 in the United States, most of us, and I, I think that one of the difficulties we're having culturally is people are not going through normal maturing processes anymore, morally and spiritually speaking. The phase of moral and personal development where you're primarily concerned about what's going to happen to you is a very important phase of development, and it's supposed to end fairly early in your life, Okay. So you're, you're born, and then you wonder two basic things. Am I secure? Like, are, am I going to have enough? And am I, am I good enough? So there's the question of inferiority and superiority, and, there's the, and there's, the, there's the question of provision, and those make up your sense of security. And so if you have parents, right, and your parents love you, and you have enough food, that's supposed to get sorted out pretty early, and then you're supposed to move on to other questions like, who am I? And this is what you, you get with adolescence normally, and even hormonally. Like, they start differentiating from their parents because they're asking the question, who am I? Now, they usually ask that question in terrible ways. They start thinking that they should be more like their friends or what's on the television or something. But the natural production of, like, who am I is normal. That's what should happen. And first, it'll start with things like things that I like or people that I like or places I like to go. But it should fairly quickly become what sort of things do I believe are right and wrong? What sort of things do I believe are true and false? And what does that mean I must do to be an honorable person? And so you, what happens is you start coalescing and forming a moral identity. This is the sort of man I am. This is the sort of woman I am. And we're supposed to do that in relationship to the truth. And we're supposed to do that in relationship to the truth that is displayed in Christ. Okay? What that means is increasingly you start thinking less and less about what's going to happen to you and more and more about who you are. And so that more and more of your, the decisions you make in a complex world aren't even decisions because you already know the answer because of who you are. And you're not wondering about what you should do because you're not sure about what will happen to you if you make this or that decision. Right? And so 
What happens in a world that doesn't believe anything absolutely and that doesn't know that God exists in heaven and that he has given you security in Christ forever, that you will survive the grave, that you are his beloved child, that everything that you need you already have, that he has given you, in the words of Ephesians, every spiritual blessing in Christ. There's no need of security that you still have. And no, no, no need of affirmation that you still have. You are the beloved child of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? You are justified in Christ. So who can condemn you? Your sense of inferiority is put away into security as well. God gives us both threats and promises to get us past the stage of wondering what's going to happen to us. Because people who are wondering what's going to happen to them, who are nervous and anxious and depressed and frustrated about what's going to happen to me, are the most manipulatable creatures that can possibly exist. Any temptation, any temptation will get them to do whatever the tempter wants. Because like Satan says in the book of Job, skin for skin, every man will do anything to save his life. The whole concept of the book of Job was not literally everyone try Job. You see, if we are emotionally immature, which we generally are, and we go to the Bible, of course we're going to see divine threats of wrath and divine promises of blessing. And if we're cynical, secular people, we'll be annoyed by what we think is the cheapness of these divine promises to blessing so religious people don't deal with the real gritty problems of life, and how angry we'll be about the threats of divine wrath about our treason against his own creation. But in, in effect, it's meant to just push us to the next line of maturity. And part of the reason those things are so obvious is, is because it's all we can see. If you read the Bible, and you look for threats and promises to people who are only concerned about what will happen to them. And then you read the Bible looking for all the statements of identity that God gives you. Who and what we are. What sort of men and women we should become in Christ. You will find way more discussion about who we are in Christ. And who we're meant to be. And what God has made us for. But when we're immature and angry and mainly just concerned about what will happen to us, and therefore we're cynical about God because God will know, we know God will tell us to do things that will cause us to not be primarily concerned about what will happen to us. So we're already predisposed to not like what he says. We'll go to the Bible, and all we will see is the stuff he tells us to do and how upset that makes us about we don't know what will happen to us if we obey all these things. But the, the part of the point is, is that God is— as soon as possible, calling you beyond the question of what will happen to you to the bigger and more important question of as a child of God, as someone who's been justified by faith, as someone who bears the divine image of the holy God and has been redeemed by the death and resurrection of Christ, who will live forever as a new creation, what kind of man or woman in Christ are you? Who and what are you? And therefore, how should you then live? And the answer in this verse is, you are light. You're light. The second thing is, being light takes becoming. Uh, the, this verse says, for you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. 
live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in goodness, all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. So if you say, okay, so I'm light, what does that mean? Right? And the fruit of light, that is what light creates, is goodness, righteousness, and truth, right? So that's what you would aim for. But that's pretty general. You know what I mean? Aim for goodness, righteousness, and truth. Well, if you've just been darkness for a long time, and you don't really know exactly what that means, general statements like goodness, righteousness, and truth could mean almost anything to you, right? And so one of the, one of the things to recognize is like, yes, part of being light is saying, okay, what my life is going to be aimed at now is goodness, righteousness, and truth. And if you think that sounds boring, oh, so I'm going to have to be a goody two-shoes. No, no, no. No, it means you're going to actually, in an honorable and powerful way, live towards good, goodness, righteousness, and truth. And if you think that's boring, you've never tried. Okay? I'll just tell you. You've never tried to live for goodness, righteousness, and truth. You may have tried to be a hypocrite before. You may have tried to be legalistic before. You may have tried to be like, like snide and like condescending morally before. But you've never actually really— endeavored to live for goodness, righteousness, and truth. Because there's nothing more dramatic, more difficult, that requires more courage than to really live as light in that way. But you, you don't really know all the stuff to do, right? And so when Paul says, like, live, you want, we want to live for goodness, righteousness, and truth, and then he says, now, and what the Greek word means— Find out is a good translation. It, it means something literally a little bit more like prove. Pr prove what pleases the Lord. Because find out, that almost sounds like go to the library. You know what I mean? Find out what pleases the Lord. Right? It's in the big government document on page 476. You know, like it, it feels like you're supposed to like dig it up. But that's not really what it means. It means to prove something. That is like usually through experience, you like, kind of like work, you work it through— and you try to figure out how to apply these general principles, utilizing the broader commands of God, the wisdom that he teaches, like all, you just kind of work it all together, and over time, you're like, you're learning stuff. And you're like, okay, that makes sense. Or, yeah, okay, I see this. And you, and you grow in what the Bible calls discernment, right? You can see things for what they are. You see them in their proper context. You see a lot more of the things that are affecting them. And then you can apply— truth, righteousness, and goodness to it, and figure out what the right thing at the right moment in the right way is. Right? You can learn to prove what pleases God, the right application of goodness, righteousness, and truth. Does that make sense? And that is a process. It's a process. And so every Christian is caught in this tension of God declaring us righteous in Christ, him saying, I count you as my beloved child. And realize that though that is, that work is finished, your, your standing is finished, the transformation of you as a person who becomes wise and discerning and godly is a process. And it's a process you have to be fully a part of and deeply committed to and participating in all the time. Part of the drama of living for God is trying to figure out what you learned yesterday and what that means for the future and what that means about you and how that can, how that can be more in line with who God is. Does that make sense? So you can imitate God and you can be light. 
you can see this in a number of places. So um, if you went through substance with us, substance chapter 4 talks about the mind of Christ. That's what he's talking about, proving the will of God. So he says, it says, um, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, that is the fact that God has saved you, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. You see that? That's from Ephesians 5.1, that we would be fragrant offerings, right? Holy and pleasing to God. See, pleasing there. Find out what pleases the Lord. Offer yourselves as living sacrifice so you'd be pleasing to God. You see, the, the Bible is saying these things over and over again in lots of different ways so that we would get it, right? There, so what do you do? This is your spiritual act of worship. So don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test, and then the result is you'll be able to approve. So, so you'll go through this process of testing, but over time it'll be less testing and figuring out and more approving and knowing right? You'll be able to test and then approve what God's will is, his good will, his pleasing, and his perfect will, right? And then you'll know, and then you can do it, and then you can be light, right? You can see this in Philippians 2. This is what I'm praying for you, he says to the church, that your love, and love here means how you act in the world towards other people, right? He wants that to be light. So what, what does he want to happen with their love, for it to be more emotional? Well, what he says is, that it may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Right? You see what he's saying? He's like, I know, I know you realize you're supposed to love people, but loving people is really hard. Because what is loving requires discernment in any given situation. What do they really need? Well, they need an expression of goodness, righteousness, and truth. But which one? And how? And delivered in what way? With what tone of voice? And like— it, re it requires more than that, right? And so he's like, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the—there's the word fruit again— fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's some other passages that cover that, but we'll only look at those two. Do you see the idea here? You, the fact that you are light, if you belong to Christ, is a instantaneous thing that happened when Jesus regenerated you and filled you with the Spirit. It is a fundamental fact about you that you didn't earn and can never earn. Okay? It's just yours. It's a gift. It's also a gift that you'll spend the rest of your life learning to be. And that's not—that's not a burden. Right? Like, it's—because, see, people say flippantly— it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. It's all about the journey. And it, it, it literally annoys me every time I drive to the airport in Madison where it had, they have a little moniker. It's about the journey. And I'm like, it's not really about the journey. It's that I want to land safely at my destination. <laughs> I don't care about the peanuts, really, you know? But people kind of say that flippantly, like, it's about the journey. It, no, it totally is about the journey, partly. But what is the journey? Right? See, that's the thing. People are like, it's about the journey, so I'm just going to fumble through life with no intentionality, with no interest. I'm just going to do whatever I want because it's about the journey. And if it's about the journey, then how I do the journey or where I go in the journey or the way I do the journey, none of that matters. It matters a lot! Right? Like, I'm in three days— I'm hopefully going to go on a journey in Colorado to go end the life of some horned ungulate. And when I do that, like, it's, it's really going to matter how I do the journey, or I'm going to freeze to death, or fall off a cliff, or lose my daughter out in the woods somewhere, which will anger my wife dramatically. Like, these are important things about journeys. 
I've been spending months exercising, getting just the right load for my rifle, and getting the right clothes ready, and the right freeze-dried food so it doesn't weigh more than it has to. Like, how you do the journey matters. So don't flippantly say, well, it's about the journey. Well, okay, well then let's focus on what we're doing in the journey. And one of the things we're doing in the journey, perhaps the most important thing we're doing in the journey, is we're going through the process of experiencing God revealing himself to us by testing and proving the meaning and use of his goodness, righteousness, and truth in every situation of our life and what it shows us and how it changes us and how it affects the people around us so that we can more and more live like we are light. Let's keep moving. Third thing in this passage it says about light is that light exposes darkness. This may be the most uncomfortable point in this sermon. Light exposes darkness. That's what it does. It says this, nothing, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. So there's a couple things about these verses. It is explicitly saying to us that it is the job and work of light naturally to expose what is in darkness. Okay? And so the apostle explicitly says that part of the metaphor applies to you who are light in Christ. It is your job to expose darkness. Okay? I'm feeling uncomfortable yet? All right. Well, it's about the journey, you know? So then he says— Right after it, something that's a little weird. He says, so for it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, which is kind of interesting because he just said to expose it, and now he's like, it's shameful even to mention it, which has led some commentators to say, you shouldn't actually say anything is wrong. You should just, oh, like live beautifully. And by living beautifully, you will naturally by contrast expose darkness, and then it will be made visible. I don't think that's what it means at all. I think it means this. Talking about what's wrong and exposing it is really embarrassing. It's really embarrassing. You will feel really embarrassed. You'll feel a sense of shame, and people will try to shame you whenever you engage in exposing darkness. Especially the stuff that is well-loved and, and deeply hidden below ground. In the context here, there's probably, it's probably, there's a context here of, of sexual immorality because of the context from earlier in the chapter. But it, it's still about everything. Everybody naturally wants to hide their darkness, and nobody wants it exposed. The darkness is usually pretty dark. And, um, and you will generally feel embarrassed and inhibited from actually saying anything about it. And that's pretty scary. But then he says, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For light, it is light that makes everything visible. So what he says is, but listen, yeah, I realize it's really shameful. I realize it's really embarrassing. I realize you'll feel ashamed and intimidated to expose darkness. But listen, um, when you shine light on something in order to expose it, it makes everything visible. And people can see. And see that the problem with being in darkness is, is that, is your sin hidden if you're in darkness? Well, it's hidden from you, and it might be hidden from other people who can't see in the dark, right? 
And so there's a certain amount of comfort to being able to hide there. It's not hidden from God, and you aren't hidden from the results or implications or damage of the sin that you're doing. But you see, when light comes, it both exposes, but it also reveals. That, that's the thing about light. Light will expose things you want to keep hidden, but it will also illuminate things that you need to know. So yes, it's shameful, and yes, it's hard, and yes, it's embarrassing. And yes, it creates the negative effect of people feeling hurt by the fact that you expose something they want to keep hidden. But the, pro- but the problem is, is that it's only through that exposure that what needs to become visible can become visible for their good. The Apostle talks about this a lot in, um, in the Scriptures. For, for example, in um, Romans 1, he says um, that there were people who didn't want to know the knowledge of God. And then he says the effect of that was that their foolish hearts were darkened. When people reject believing in the Lord and and seeing the world in light of what he shows, it darkens their capacity to understand and see, and they they begin to have a limited vision of what they actually see in the light of the visibility of the truth, right? That's why the, the light shines not just goodness and not just righteousness, but truth, right? You can see this, he quotes, he says this in Ephesians 4, just the chapter before this. Remember this? I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. You see, it's the same argument as in Romans 1, 28. That when we harden our hearts to God, we won't believe in him. That hardening in our hearts creates a darkening in our minds. Always. You can't have one without the other. The minute any human being, whether religious or irreligious, chooses not to know the knowledge of God, there are always two effects. Their heart increasingly hardens, and their mind increasingly darkens to those truths, and everything related to them. In fact, when um, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John 3, right, I think I have this one on the slide. He says, he's talking to Nicodemus about what the gospel means and what it means that Jesus is coming. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But everyone, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Right? So you see what Jesus is saying? He's not saying what this passage is saying yet, but he's saying this. He's saying, listen, light has come into the world. Like John 1 says that Jesus, the light of God, has come into the world. And the answer is, how much good has that done for people? Right? Two verses before this, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So how much good has that done? And Jesus says, precisely very little. Because light has come into the world, but because men and women love darkness, they hide from the light so that it won't shine on them. He said, but if anybody will decide that they want to live in the truth. Do you see the difference here? Remember what I said at the beginning? That people either exist in what is going to happen to me or what is true and what kind of person am I? It's not just a Christian truth. Remember, every Christian truth, if it's true, is a universal truth. Jesus is saying every human being who decides to live by the truth knows they have to come into the light. 
because the truth compels you to do what's true. You no longer control it, and the truth and the light are connected. They're saying the same thing. If you decide you're not going to just live for whatever you want to do, if you're not just a person concerned about only about what's going to happen to you or what you can get, but if you're a person who's going to live by the truth, the truth is going to lead you into the light, and you're going to realize that the way you got there was because God was working, right? And the question is, how does that happen? How do those of us, all of us, who want to live in darkness, who don't want to live in the light, who want to hide from it, who don't want the benefit of the light coming into the world, right? Because if we do, it's been done by God, it says, right? How do we end up in the light? And the answer is this verse. The answer is, those who Jesus has made light, that's you, actively expose deeds of darkness, and in doing so, they bring illumination that is necessary to darken minds and hardened hearts so that God can work in illuminating and freeing them. That's, that's our work. You see, many of us want to say, look, I don't want to say negative things and point out bad stuff and like get in cultural arguments and post mean things on Facebook. You don't need to post mean things on Facebook. But there's a certain amount of, like, moral cowardice because, like, let's just talk about Jesus, that God loves people, and that he's inviting them to himself. And so, listen, I'm all for that. God is very loving. He loves you. He's inviting you to himself. He wants you to believe in him. He wants you to become his child. You'll feel so loved. It'll be great. That's all true. The problem is, is that, and I use this word in its technical sense, the vast majority of the world doesn't give a damn literally. And it's actually not until the pain of being exposed in the things that we should have known were wrong and really did, and that having to be, see the truth made visible, that creates a conflict in us that the Bible calls conviction. The conviction of sin. That is, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is who I am. That awakening has to happen. Otherwise, if, even if somebody accepts Jesus, they'll do it like on their terms about what they can get from Jesus because they're still living in the what's going to happen to me realm. What's going to happen to me? Oh, I guess I'll add Jesus. I'll accept him. Okay, it's not until the truth shines in and exposes and illuminates and they're like, what kind of person am I? Am I going to still be this kind of person? And the answer is, Yes, unless something very radical happens. Like what? Like admitting you are totally wrong. And that God has always been completely right. And that you're going to trust in him and, and learn from him and reject all of this. The Bible calls that what? Repentance and faith. That's the only thing the Bible says is saving. The Bible never says accepting Jesus is saving. Because that could mean anything. Accepting Jesus means, if it means something, repentance of the old self of all that's been exposed because God in his grace has confronted you and made things you didn't want to see visible and exposed things you wanted to keep secret and brought you to a point of what the Bible calls conviction where you're like, I can't continue to be this person. I wasn't made to be this person. I don't want to be this person. I know where this person is going and I don't like where that is going. It might all be about the journey. I don't want to go on that journey. Something has to happen. I fear that I can't change. I fear that what has to happen is supernatural, but God probably hates me. That is the right place to be in. And at that moment, you can say, God doesn't hate you. 
God loves you and he has made provision for exactly that place. That Christ has died for you. So that all that has been exposed and all that you fear you are and all that you think you could never change and all that you think you must be condemned for is put away forever and the death and sacrifice and the fragrant offering of the Son of God for you. And only then will you feel the gravity of it. Other than that, it's just like some religious talk about Jesus dying on the cross. It'll never come home, right? And then real repentance can happen and then real faith. And that real faith will be the faith, not just of what will happen to me, oh, maybe I can go to heaven. It will be the faith of a new identity. I am his, and I am no longer that. I was darkness, now I am light in Christ, and I will spend the rest of my days proving what goodness, righteousness, and truth looks like, because I will pursue it with everything that I have for the rest of my life, with the power of the Spirit in the company of the church, until I am with the saints departed in a new heavens and a new earth. Right? And that's, that's exactly what the apostle says, right, in the next verse, right? The whole point of exposing darkness is not to make people feel bad. The point of exposing darkness is so there would be a soul's awakening and resurrection and sunrise, right? Do you know, remember, because the next verse is, right, but everything exposed to light becomes visible for it's light, light that makes everything visible. And then he says, this is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The point of the exposure isn't the humiliation of others, though it is humiliating to be exposed. But it's not their condemnation. If what we want, if what God wants for us is condemnation, what would he do? What would he do now while we are alive if his goal was our condemnation? What would he do? It's very evident what he would do. Nothing. He'd just do nothing. We're perfectly good at condemning ourselves, living in a mob, affirming each other's wickedness, and getting whatever we want for ourselves. Self-condemnation is not something God has to work out for us. If God wanted our self-destruction and ultimate damnation, all God would have to do is nothing. Everything that he does, even the most terrifying threats of damnation, are all for love. They're all for redemption. They're all that light would shine in the darkness. And what it would expose, it would also make visible. And that we would see. And so those of us lost in a moral stupor, and to some extent we're all still lost in a moral stupor, and he's illuminating all of us. But even in the either or of knowing him and not knowing him, that darkness, the whole point is that if the light shines in, something could happen in you and in me, and we would wake up from some weird dream. You know what I mean? Like, you know, what I, you, know what I, you know what I mean? Like, have you had dreams where, like, it seems pretty real, but it seems a little off, and you're doing things you know are wrong. You can't really stop yourself from doing them the way you'd like. It's like, and you wake up and you're like, was that real? Like, it, it, and, and what, what Paul's saying is, like, everybody— Everybody in darkness is like living in a dream like that. This weird dream state in which they, you, there's signals you should know you're in a dream, but you don't kind of. You're doing things that are wrong, but you don't really have a morally focused mind. Like, it's weird. 
And then you wake up and you have this sense of reality just come on you like, oh, it's Thursday. I have to go to the gym. Like it's, it like instantly, it's gone like a mist. And like the, like the hard stone reality of, of what's true is there, right? And what Paul's saying is that could happen. You guys, that could happen. If we live as light, real light, not self-righteousness, not religious condescension, but everything that we do is seeking the fruit of goodness, righteousness, and truth. And if we shine that, and when necessary, we expose darkness so that things can be made visible, even though it exposes things. If we did that, God will use that so that some people will awake out of that dream. They'll wake up, right? And if that happens, and they experience the conviction and, and, the, and the, the illumination that wakes them up, what could happen is they could believe in the one who has come to show the truth. Right? They could, they could decide to come into the light, and they could experience the miracle of being raised spiritually and morally from the dead. Right? They could experience salvation. They could experience regeneration. They could experience redemption. Right? They could rise from the dead, and then— that's not, but remember, that, remember, that's not the end goal. The end goal is not just being saved or being made spiritually alive. The end goal is the favor of God, right? That's the end goal. The eternal experience of the enjoyment of the favor of God, right? We're getting to that time of year where it's still dark when you probably should be getting up, and it feels dreary, and it's cold. And um, I took Abby to the range on— Saturday, and it was like 7 a.m., and it was freezing cold. And we were there till about 9, and so I came out from under the canopy where we were freezing to death, basically, and I stepped into the sunlight that was coming over it, and I could just instantly feel the warmth on my face. And I just felt different. I felt better. I felt—I just felt more hopeful, just like walking down this path. I just—it completely changed my demeanor and my mood, and—, and Paul says that's the end goal. The end goal is that someone would be awakened so that they would rise from the dead in regeneration and so they would experience forever Christ shining on them in this present life, in faith, in many ways, and forever in many more and unimaginable ways. And um, there are a lot of ways to apply this. But the one we're going to do today is we're going to do the ritual of arising, awaking, arising, and letting Christ shine on you, which is the Christian ritual of baptism, which signifies that God has done the work of awakening a human heart, that that person has experienced regeneration, they have repented and believed, and God has raised them up from the dead spiritually speaking, and morally speaking, and truthfully speaking, and they have stepped into a new life of a new creation in which Christ will shine on them. So let me make two applications. Application one. Believe in Jesus with all and everything that you are. Which means repent let yourself be exposed by the truth of God because 
that which embarrassingly and humiliatingly exposes you is also the light that will illuminate the truths that you need to know who you are and to walk as you must. Repentance is necessary, not just to go to heaven, which is worth doing, but to even be who you are and were meant to be. The image bearer of a holy God, redeemed for a, to be a new creation, made with his hands to do works of beauty and goodness that he knows about that you don't even know about yet. And that that's your destiny. And it starts with repentance and faith. And the second is be baptized if you haven't been. If you haven't done the ritual of awakening, rising from the dead, and letting Christ shine on you, if you haven't obeyed him in the simplest thing of like getting in a tub of water in obedience, right? Like if you can't get a tub of water out of obedience, the idea that you are walking as light and following him with all that you are is probably a limited possibility, all right? And so one of the things that you, you want to do immediately, as soon as you can after repentance and faith, when you put your trust in Christ, is to confirm it and to walk it out and to obey in it by being baptized. And so if you haven't, I hope that you'll watch these folks get baptized, that you'll celebrate with them, but that the conviction will come home to you that you need to be baptized as soon as possible. Father, please help us as a church, as a family, as the body of Christ to live as light together. Help us to increasingly make sure that this is not a behavior of self-righteousness, but I pray that you would help us to lead with humility in all that we do and how we see things— Help us to prove and discern what is your will and what's pleasing to you. And help us to know when and how to do the work of exposing deeds of darkness. Always with the intention that it would produce the end of an awakening arising from the dead and you shining on those who come into the light. Father, please help us to be a people who know that we're light and live like it. In Jesus' name.